Good morning, Haven Ridge family and anybody else that's joining with us online. I want to welcome you uh, to our virtual service. Thankfully, this is our last virtual service, at least without the church body being present. We will continue to post these services online for those that might be interested or for those that we hope that it might help. But if you're with us, please turn to John's Gospel, John chapter 12. Please turn to John chapter 12. Now, let me give you a little bit of a context leading up to this. Lazarus has died, and Lazarus was raised from the dead, pointing to Christ and his power to take us from spiritual death into spiritual life. And then you have the anointing, well, you have the plot to kill Jesus. If you remember that Caiaphas in John chapter 12, that Caiaphas uh, concocted a plan to kill Christ. And so that plan was in motion. After that, you have a triumphal entry of Christ. Jesus comes riding in according to prophecy on a donkey's colt. And then after this, you have what Austin taught last week in the text where it speaks of a man who hates his life and a man who loves his life. And a man who truly wants to have life, mu- mu- have life must hate his life. And now we get to another portion of this text that right out of the gate is very interesting. And it's very telling of something significant. And here it is. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And when you see something like that or hear something like that, you can't be dismissive because this is the sovereign king of the universe. And you would think that nothing would trouble Christ. I mean, if you're sovereign, if you control all things with the word of your power, what would trouble you? What would concern you? You see, it's not the first time that we've heard Jesus or seen Jesus express emotion or be troubled. We saw that we saw that whenever uh, whenever Jesus drives out the money changers in John chapter two, he's he's angry. But this is a righteous anger because what because of what these money changers were doing in the in the house of God. And then you see him crying over the death of Lazarus. And then you see him crying as he entered the city of Jerusalem. But one thing is peculiar about those expressions or those emotions are he's affected by what sin has done. He's angry at what sinners are doing or he's angry at how sin has affected people ultimately leading to death such as the case with Lazarus or he's upset because he goes into a city knowing that although people cheer for him and although there's this ticker tape parade for him that a portion, if not most of the people, don't believe in him as the Messiah to save them from their sins, but they believe him as the Messiah to save them from Roman oppression. But this is different. Where Jesus expresses emotions here is very different. Today's objective is this. I want to issue a warning to the unbelieving world and to encourage the followers of Christ to walk in the light. Because I know that there are those of you that are viewing this that are on both sides of the fence. And I want you to hear this from a heart of love, from a pastor's heart, from a shepherd's heart in that sense as God has made us under shepherds of his flock that You need to hear the warnings that Jesus issues if you are an unbeliever. Because eternity is at stake, and that's just not something that we should be trivial about. So the objective is to issue a warning to unbelievers and to encourage the followers of Christ to walk in 
the light. So here we are in the text. Let me just read some of it, and we'll kind of talk the text as we go. Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. And you have to ask the question, what has troubled him? And I think maybe most of the people hearing this would know, but the next few verses or the next verse kind of helps us understand this along with the greater context, the greater narrative. Jesus says, Father, save me from this hour, but, or he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What is Jesus talking about? Well, obviously he's talking about the cross. He's talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about what he's about to endure. And where a lot of us will fast track to the cross and fast track to say, you know what, he's troubled because he's about to be scourged. He's troubled because he's about to have nails driven through his wrists and through his feet. He's troubled because he's about to die uh, a very humiliating death, a guilty man's death. So, of course, he's troubled, but I would submit to you that it is so much more than the humiliation of the cross. It is so much more than the, the nails driven through his wrists and feet. It's so much more than the scourging. What Jesus is about to endure is absolute hell in that he's about to absorb the wrath of God. Now, this is something that we can't afford to bypass I think it's easy for Christians to just not contemplate or meditate on the wrath of God because we, in our minds, we say it doesn't affect us. We're washed, we're cleansed, we're purified, we're good with God. And that's true. But we should not be dismissive about the wrath of God, especially as it pertains to the lost world. Because our purpose in this life, to make disciples, to glorify God in making disciples goes hand in hand with the reality that those who are in unbelief have the wrath of God abiding on them. And that's exactly what the text says. So this is absolutely pertinent and relevant to us. We can't just speed past it as though we're in a glass-bottom boat speeding across the, 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 the surface of the water in the ocean. You may see a few tropical fish. You may see some coral that just wisps up under you, but you don't really get to interact or engage or really see what's there or appreciate the details or the intricacies of the ocean floor. But what we're going to do is we're going to put on the scuba gear we're going to delve into the waters and really start to investigate and see what is happening in this text so that we don't miss anything. So let's meditate on the wrath of God for just a second. This is why Jesus and his soul is troubled, because going to the cross meant that Jesus would have to endure God's wrath. Let me just say a few things about the wrath of God and Jesus and how it relates or how they relate. Jesus is an infinite, or God, sorry, is an infinite being, speaking of God the Father, an infinite being with an infinite capacity for hatred. God hates sin. He's made that very clear. The problem is man sins. Man doesn't just sin, but man is sin. Man is darkness. Man is the exact opposite of what God is. You have absolute imperfection pitted against absolute perfection. Therefore, God's holiness demands an absolute intolerance and hatred 
for sin. But it's not just that God demands that. It's not just that his nature necessitates a hatred for sin and an action taken against sin. But God has an infinite capacity for hatred against sin. Now, I know you've been angry in your life. I know you've been mad at somebody. Maybe you've said things under your breath that you would never imagine saying out loud with regards to how angry you were at another person. And you can keep those inside your brain. But just think of this. You, despite how angry you've been, despite the degree of emotions you've been able to express, it doesn't hold a candle to the capacity that God has for his wrath or for his hatred. Now the good thing is that the same is true for God's love, mercy, grace, wisdom, jealousy, all these things. He has an infinite capacity because he's an infinite God. And consider this. God, with his infinite capacity for hatred, for, for, for hatred against sin, dispensing that wrath onto Jesus is what Jesus had to endure. He became the recipient of that wrath. The scripture says that he became a propitiation or he became an appeasement of that wrath. Listen. This is how I would define wrath, if it helps you at all. Wrath is the necessary and natural disposition of God towards sin that results in an action demanded by the justice of God. And let me say that in another way. Because God is just, because God is holy, he's pure and perfect, God has to deal with sin. That's because he's just. His justice by nature, demands a response to sin because sin is rebellion against God. We understand this, whether you know it or not, because we live in a world that is judicial. We live in a world with checks and balances. We live in a world where if you transgress, there are penalties. Sometimes in this world you get away with them. Sometimes you do not. But we know that they are there. And God has given governing authorities. And have you ever wondered, for better or for worse... God has given these governing authorities and what they do is they represent his justice. So again, wrath is the necessary or natural disposition of God towards sin that results in an action demanded by the justice of God. God's justice is a part of his nature. It is an attribute of God and from justice, his wrath flows. And Jesus is about to be the recipient of wrath that flows from the justice of God, from God's holiness. Let me dig in this a little bit further. One sin is enough to separate man from God for eternity. And not just committing a sin, but being sinful, having a sin nature is enough to render man guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. But one sin, one sin, God will pour out his wrath. And if man commits one sin, and if that's all you've ever committed is one sin, it is so heinous and so reprehensible and so anti-God that it takes an eternity for God to dispense his wrath and to be satisfied in dispensing justice for your sin. And that's one sin. Now you and I have a catalog of sins. You and I have spent our lives sinning against God. We are masters of sin. Now I'm thankful for grace. I'm thankful for redemption and God's pardon of my sins. 
I'm thankful that Jesus stood in my place. And Jesus would receive the wrath of God, not just for one sin of one man, but for every single act against God, commission or omission, ignorant or with knowledge of. And he would suffer the sins of every man who would believe and every man's sin. And God would take his hatred for every single sin of those who believe for all time and he would pour it out on Jesus. Jesus, the God-man existing from eternity past in full equality with God the Father was keenly aware of what he was about to endure. You see, this adds insult to injury. Now we start to see why Jesus says, my soul is troubled, because Jesus knew better than anybody what he was about to happen. Why? Because Jesus is God. God's wrath is Jesus' wrath. Do you understand this? I know this is a crazy paradox, and this is wildly beyond our brain's capacity of understanding But Jesus is fully God, so God's wrath is Jesus' wrath. Jesus absolutely knew and understood exactly what God the Father was about to pour out on him, and Jesus stood there, and he took it. But his soul was troubled because he knew what was coming. I think of the the book, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, when, when, when Strider and Frodo meet for the first time at the Prancing Pony, And the wraiths are searching for Frodo in the fellowship or the company, the hobbits there at the time. And Strider says to him, look, man, do you know what's hunting? Are you you afraid? He says, yes. He says, not nearly enough because I know what's hunting you. Why would Strider say that? Because he had dealt with the wraiths before. He had intimate knowledge of their power, of what kind of threat they posed. And so in a, similar, in a similar sense, Jesus is absolutely aware of what he's about to go through because he is, in fact, God. If there were ever a reason to have a troubled soul, it was at this point in the life of Christ. But this does not reduce his deity. His concern, his experience his emotion going into this the troubling of his soul was not a reduction of his deity but an expression and a highlighting of his humanity because God in Christ is fully God and fully man so why is Jesus soul troubled because he's about to face down the wrath of God he's about to absorb it he's about to receive it and God's not going to hold back and he's going to endure that wrath And then the scripture says, so what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I come to this hour. Now, let me just speak to this just a moment because this can be a little bit difficult. There are several interpretations here. Keep in mind, when you read this, most likely, depending on the translation that you read, you see that this is posed as a question. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. And that very well might be appropriate rendering of this text or this phrase. But there's also the possibility from some scholars and their work that say that this isn't necessarily a question or rhetorical question. But that this is a sincere expression or question that Jesus would be saying, please deliver me from this. What shall I say? Father, please deliver me. 
You see, and some scholars cling to that because the same thing will happen just a few moments later from this text when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to say, Father, please remove this cup from me. He asks God this a number of times. So it could be that Jesus is actually praying, saying, God, please deliver me from this. I know that I've come for this purpose, so glorify your name in whatever you do. Whichever translation you lean towards or land on is is okay. None of them are detrimental to the text or do damage to the text. What does do damage to the text is if you interpret this as saying, see, Jesus is contemplating rebellion against God. That's not what's happening. That would be heresy because it's contrary to the very nature of Jesus as the God-man. I think right now I'm leaning towards but haven't landed on, and that's kind of where we are sometimes. We either lean or land. I'm leaning towards this possibly being a request to God. God, please save me from this hour. But it may not be. But here's here's the beauty of this text. Regardless of which interpretation you adopt for yourself, the heart behind this, the motivation of Jesus is the same, and that is this, that His agenda was to fulfill the command of God for the glory of God. You see, that's what you can't miss here. Wherever you land, on either side of the questions that are asked here, are they rhetorical or are they legitimate requests? Wherever you land, it doesn't matter. What does matter is that you understand that what Jesus is doing as far as his agenda is he's working to honor God through obedience and for God's glory because he says, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Jesus wanted God to be glorified through his life and through his actions. So what came out of this troubled soul? What came out of Christ's anguish over what's about to happen in his life. Glory. Glory. God's glory. Ultimately, Jesus' desire was the glory of God. He says, Father, glorify your name. He didn't say, Father, glory. He, he, didn't, he didn't ask for the glory of man. This is, this is not something that's for the glory of the world or for the glory of God's elect, but it's for the glory of the name of God. Many years ago, during the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers came up with a, with, with, with a phrase called the five solas. And this, this list of the five solas was to basically, con- to, to concisely capture their theology or specifically their soteriology, their, their understanding of salvation. And they wanted all the, the glory to go to, to be or to go to God. So they wrote these statements down in Latin called sola scriptura, which means the glory, uh, or sorry, the, it means the, the scripture alone. They wrote sola fide, which means faith alone. They wrote sola gratia, which means grace alone. And then they wrote solus Christus, which is in Christ alone or by Christ alone. So ultimately what they're saying 
is, look, we're not, we're not trusting in any works. We're not trusting in any membership. We're not trusting in any, in any of our accolades, our accomplishments, or our achievements. All of our hope, all of our life, everything we have, the, the eternal security that we have, the, 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 the kindness that we might offer to others, everything is solely based on the gifting of God. Just like John said in John's gospel, John the Baptist when the others came around him and said, man, look at these disciples doing all this stuff. Look at Jesus doing this. You're, they basically kind of stepped in your way. And he says, anything good that I have comes from heaven. I must decrease so that Jesus must increase. So this is what the, the reformers wrote. And after these four, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, they, they wrote this one as the kind of the capstone of all of them, soli deo gloria, meaning the glory of God alone. All things for the glory of God. Not the glory of man, not the glory of you, not the glory of your career, not the glory of your kids, not the glory of your bank account, not the glory of your achievements, but the glory of God alone. And even in the face of the most terrific scenario imaginable, Jesus desired the glory of God over his own comfort. So let me ask you a question. What is our purpose in this life? I know a lot of people have been asking that question. And it's the easiest question to answer, but it's one of the most sought-after questions to find the wrong conclusion over and over and over again. So let me help you. The purpose of humanity is the glory of God. Period. And you can do that through anything and everything you do. What would it look like to take a page out of Jesus' book? I think that's one thing we take away here. If we're being conformed to the image of Christ and we see that his soul is troubled, why? Because he's about to go and endure the wrath of God, but his concern is, God, more than I want to be removed from this situation, more than I don't want to absorb your wrath, I do want you to be glorified. So what would it look like to be like Christ in this manner? Not that we might absorb the wrath of God, but that we might consider the glory of God in all things first. For God to be glorified in everything that you do means that everything you do serves as a platform to point others to Christ. Father, be glorified in my job, meaning my work ethic, my treatment of others, my respect for the chain of command and offices. Father, be glorified in my marriage, meaning that I want my marriage to be a display of the gospel. I want in my marriage uh, to show proper love to my spouse. I want there to be forgiveness. I want there to be patience. I want there to be those things because they're representative of my relationship with Christ. So, Lord, be glorified in my marriage. Father, be glorified in my encouragement of others around me. Or, Father, be glorified in my boldness in proclaiming truth. You can fill that in with whatever you want. That's not sin. And God can be glorified. Image bearers, specifically those who are being conformed to the image of Christ, image bearers are meant to be glory givers, not glory takers. Our purpose is to reflect our purpose is to reflect Christ, to reflect the light that we've been given and that we're walking in. Let's move forward in the text. 
After Jesus says these things or asks these questions, he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there, and they said that it had thundered or that an angel had spoken to him. Father, glorify your name. Jesus says, I have, and I will again. Specifically talking about the fact that God has already glorified his name through Jesus' life, through Jesus' ministry, through Jesus' works and His wonders and His words. God has been receiving the glory of, been receiving glory from His Son. He says, I've, I've been glorified. You've been glorifying me, and I'm going to be glorified again, speaking specifically about the cross. God the Father speaks to the Son and said, I will be glorified again in you going to the cross, being put to death, and in me raising you from the dead, and then drawing men to yourself. I will be glorified. But then he says something very interesting. The crowds speak up, and they say, something thundered. They heard something. God spoke audibly. They heard something. Maybe it thundered. Others thought it was an angel that spoke to him, and this is what they say. Well, they said this, and Jesus answered. He said, this voice came for your sake, not mine. And that's interesting. The voice that you all just heard was the voice of God, and he spoke for your sake, not mine. So if you haven't yet, viewing audience, right now is the time you really need to be tuning in. Because this word is timeless, and it applies to them then, and it applies to us now. So God has spoken, and he spoke so that the people would hear so that they would receive whatever he's getting at. So how does this God speaking apply to us as the reader or as the listener? Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered them and said, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So what happens here is when God spoke... He speaks warning to the unbelievers and he speaks a guarantee, a hope to those who are genuine believers. And the same is true for you and for me. Jesus says the judgment of this world is now. He says now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The non-believer can heap no greater condemnation on themselves or no greater judgment onto themselves than to hand over Jesus to be murdered. And this is what the unbelievers have done or are about to do. Is there a greater crime? Could there be a more heinous sin in all of history other than the sin of handing over the Son of God, to be scourged and crucified. This is why Jesus says, this is the judgment of the world. The ultimate betrayal. And then he says, the ruler of this world will be cast out. This doesn't mean that Satan is cast out now or that he was immediately cast out then, but this speaks towards the cross's definitive work in vanquishing the enemy. This set things in motion. 
The cross is the nail in Satan's coffin. Now, it doesn't, didn't happen 2,000 years ago. The cross did, but, but, but Satan is still doing what he's doing at the permission of Almighty God. And one day he will be cast out in fulfillment of what Jesus is saying and started at this point in John 12. But just as there is a warning to those who are lost in unbelief, there is also a promise of hope given to those who put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, a warning. And that is to you who are not in Christ, that judgment is on the way. And I'm not one of these preachers that just likes to say hard things all the time, but I am someone that's not going to shy away from truth. And Jesus talked about hell. Jesus talked about judgment. He talked about these things all the time. Why? Because these things matter. Is it because he's a killjoy? Is it because he hates you? Is it because he wants you to die? No. Because he wants you to find life. And life is only found in the gospel of Christ. And so he gives you this warning. Do we not do this all the time? For those of you that would say, man, Jesus is just so hard. He's always talking about these things. Would you not be the same way with your children? Would you not be the same way with those that you love? Would you not issue them warnings? Would you not sometimes issue very strong warnings? If a house was a blazing inferno and your kid wanted to run through it just to see if he could make it as if he was Flash Gordon, would you say, sure, go ahead, give it a try? No, you wouldn't. You would say, son, you stay away from there. And you may put hands on that child. You may hold that child. You might lock the child somewhere safe. And you wouldn't say, well, that's extreme. We're talking about the souls of men. We're talking about eternity. And the difference of suffering for that duration or being with God and having peace and fullness in that, in, in that scenario. So no, it's not as being tough or hard for tough and hardness sake. This is out of love to issue a challenge, to issue a warning to those who are in desperate need of it. So there's a warning offered to those who are in unbelief, but there's a promise, a hope, a guarantee offered to those who have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If this judgment is meant for a specific people, it means that the guarantee of hope is meant for a specific people. So when Jesus issues this threat or this warning, and he says, here's the judgment, he's speaking to those who are in unbelief and who would die in their unbelief. So just as there is a specific context and audience for the judgment, there's a specific audience or context for God's promise of hope. Again, the text says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This is a guarantee that Christ's atonement will prove 100% effective for all who believe. Jesus says after his resurrection that he will draw all people to himself. Language matters. Language matters. So let's walk through his statement here because this is a very hopeful promise that he's offering here. He says, I will draw all men to myself. When he says, I will draw, let me explain to you what he's saying in this word. This word from the, from the Greek is elko, which actually means to draw or to drag. The idea here is for an active agent to drag a passive or inactive agent from one point to another. 
you and I are the, are the inactive or passive agents. And then God in his grace, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, rescues us from darkness by drawing us, by calling us. He is the active agent who is doing the drawing of the inactive or passive agent. This, this, this verb is used over and over again. One, when Peter drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, he drew his sword. Peter is the active agent. The sword is the passive agent. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus is the active agent calling a passive agent. You don't get more passive than dead, by the way. So he pulls, he draws this passive agent out of death and into life, which is a picture of, of our, our being born again and made into the likeness of Christ and experiencing newness of life in him. When the disciples would draw their nets, you have the active agent, which are the disciples pulling the net, and the passive agent being the net, the net themselves. You have... People drawing water from well, the, the, the human who's drawing the water is the active agent and the bucket is the passive agent because a bucket doesn't draw water for itself. Fish or nets don't draw themselves. Swords don't draw themselves from the sheath because they are passive agent. Jesus says, when I come up from the earth, when I'm resurrected, I will be the active agent. I will be the active agent that draws dead men out of darkness and bring them into light. He says, I will not just draw men, but I will draw all men. This all men is all without distinction, not all without exception. How do we know? Because in this context, Jesus is speaking to those who, he's speaking to those who are not under judgment. Jesus is speaking in a salvific context saying, I will rescue people to belief. It's consistent with the bigger narrative of Jesus saving from every nation, tongue, and tribe. This is an accurate representation of what the word world means. The scope is the same in John 6.44 which says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him come. You don't come to Christ on your own. You come if you are drawn. John 6.37 says, all, the, all that the Father gives me will come. What does that mean? All that the Father gives me. Has the Father given every human into the hand? No. We know that and no one would say that as a listener. But we have to ask the question, all that the Father gives me will come. All of them. All the Father gives me. Who does all refer to? Refers to those whom God had called before the foundation of the world. That one day at the appointed day of salvation, according to the book of Acts, that they would believe The all is representative of all of God's elect from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. The world. In John 10, Jesus speaks of sheep that are not of this fold. And this is who he talks about. Those who the Father has reserved for him. That Jesus doesn't know now, but in time will know. Because one day, at the appointed day of salvation, they will come to faith in Christ. 
And this is good news. This is really good news because this means this. The fact that Jesus will absolutely be successful in rescuing everyone he seeks out to rescue, everyone that is drawn to him, everyone, 100% success rate here. This is great news. That means no one who was predestined before the foundation of the world will be left in darkness. It means that no one will ever truly desire Jesus and search for him and not find him. There's not going to be a scenario where people legitimately want Christ, but he says, no, not on this side of heaven. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is totally successful in rescuing all that he came to rescue. All that the Father has given him. The only people that will die under judgment will be those who died in their hostility towards Christ. And the reality is that those who die in their trespasses and sins separated from Christ, they never wanted Jesus to begin with. But I would plead with you. Trust Christ. The fact is that any death is tragedy. But there is no greater tragedy than a Savior who is incapable of saving. Christ guarantees. Christ offers a guarantee that he will be 100% successful through his resurrection in rescuing everyone that he seeks to rescue. Jesus said, and when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. While you have the light, or so the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So the last thing that I want to share with you is this. So you've heard that uh, God's wrath is not something to be trivial about and that we need to really consider the ramifications of God's wrath abiding on people. We need to consider it as followers of Christ in issuing uh, and issuing a word of warning to those who sit under that wrath because this is very real. This is not something we can afford to get wrong or that you can afford to get wrong. We've seen that, that, that Jesus very clearly offers, or God very clearly offers a warning to those in unbelief. And it's not a coincidence that it's set up with wrath through the statement that Jesus' soul was troubled. And then we see this great promise that Jesus will be absolutely 100% and totally successful in rescuing men from their sins. But here's what I want to leave you with. These last couple of statements about darkness and light are another call that's offered. Again, a call to an unbelieving world and a call to believers. You see, all life comes with an expiration date. And I'm not trying to be grim or dark or fatalistic, but it's the reality. All life comes with an expiration date. All life is on a timer from the very beginning. Some make it further and some don't. 
But it's appointed to every man to die and to then face judgment. And that reality should cause us to think about how we will stand when we stand before God in judgment. Will we stand under the righteousness of Christ having received the light and, and have become sons of the light? Or will we stand in darkness because we never knew where we were going? And then one day you will know because one day at the name of Jesus in heaven and earth and under the earth Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That doesn't mean that the lost will then confess Jesus to be Savior, but that means that the lost will recognize He is who He says He is. But it is too late. Some think I'm too filthy for God to receive me. I've made too many mistakes. It's a lie from hell and you don't have to believe it because God has given Christ to endure wrath that you don't have to endure should you put on and believe in Jesus Christ. You see, trying to clean yourself up of your own sins is like trying to wash a white vehicle with a muddy rag. It's pointless. And that's the good news, is that you can't clean yourself up, so why not trust someone else to do it for you, namely our substitute and our advocate, Christ. I want to borrow an illustration from, uh, from, from a professor friend and a uh, former, um, uh, I've, 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 drawn a, I've drawn a blank. Um, so, you know, so from a professor in school, so I'm going to borrow this illustration a little bit. Imagine this. Imagine you go out to the ocean, and the ocean, this vast body of water that goes as far as the eye can see, represents the wrath of God. And the way to satisfy that wrath, the way to appease that wrath, is to take a cup at a time and pour it out. One cup at a time. You can't calculate the time that it would take to empty the entire ocean of its volumes of water one cup at a time. Do you think that with each scoop you can look at the horizon and see the water levels dropping? No. It's, 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 it's a mind-boggling illustration when you think of getting rid of God's wrath or satisfying it after you scoop all the ocean's water out one cup at a time. When Jesus went to the cross, friend, he drank every cup of God's wrath down to the last drop for all who would believe in Him. And that's a beautiful thing. And all there's a warning given to an unbelieving world, there's also so much grace right on the other side that waits for you if you would just call on Christ. So these final words are a call to the unbelieving world, but there's also a call to the believing world. This is a call to Christians that our light may shine so that others may see our good works and glorify God. So here we come full circle. Jesus' soul is troubled, but despite that fact, He says, God, glorify Your name. And this is the mantra or should be the mantra of every Christian is that God, we want you to be glorified because that is our purpose. If we labor to reflect the light that we walk in, we succeed in our highest of calling. And that is the glory of God. 
Soli Deo Gloria. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you take these words and you cause them to rest on our minds and on our hearts. Father, I pray that even though these words are strong and that what the text has provided is sobering, or that maybe it can be scary, especially for those that are lost. Lord, I pray that the story for the unbelievers who hear this will not end in tragedy. Lord, that you might find them where they are and rescue them. Father, for the believers, that we might take seriously the wrath that abides in a lost world, that we might be proactive and take the initiative to be lights in the midst of darkness, and to not get caught up in all of our hobbies and all of the things that we deem so very worthy and significant, but that we would do what matters most and then let all other things fall into place. Father, we ask that you would be glorified in our efforts, in our actions, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.